Access to data enables rare disease stakeholders to do more and accelerate results. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is becoming as savvy about clinical data as clinicians and researchers. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to be empowered data owners and stewards. Attend the Data DIY workshops and view resources at globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. AGTC is developing gene therapies to treat patients with rare inherited eye conditions. It has multiple programs it's advancing to restore visual function in patients with diseases that threaten to leave them blind. One issue that has emerged, though, is finding the right measures and endpoints for its clinical studies and getting the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to recognize the traditional endpoints and measures used for eye diseases may not be well suited for all of these conditions. We spoke to Sue Washer, CEO of AGTC, about the company, the indications it's pursuing, and its effort to find and use more appropriate endpoints for its studies. Sue, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be with you here today, and it's an exciting topic we're going to be discussing. Well, we're going to talk about your efforts to develop gene therapies for rare eye diseases, the challenges of clinical development, and efforts to modernize the process at the FDA. Let's start with your company, though. For listeners not familiar with Applied Genetic Technologies Corp., what is AGTC and, and what does it do? So AGTC is a gene therapy company, so we're developing co- products for people who have uh, eye uh, issues, poor vision, due to a genetic problem. And so what gene therapy does is supply back to that patient the correct genetic material so their eyes can function properly. So we're all very, very committed here at AGTC to improve the quality of life of these patients who up until now have had no way to improve their vision. Now, what makes these conditions particularly compelling for gene therapies? Well, one of the things that's intriguing about working in ophthalmology is the eye is a small contained organ that is easy to get to. We all know that that your eyes are open to the world, you collect information through your eye, and the eyes process that information such that your brain can um, understand the, the things that they're seeing. And because that eye is right out there exposed to the world, it is easy to uh, to insert the correct information to treat the genetic mutation in the eye and be able to have a a very long-term effect on the patient's life. You're currently conducting clinical studies in one condition and enrolling trials in three other conditions. Rare diseases in general can be challenging for a number of reasons. I'm hoping you can walk us through some of those issues 
and, and take them out of the abstract and talk about how they've affected advancing therapies and what you've done to address them. Perhaps the most obvious of these is the small patient populations and the fact that people with these conditions may not be properly diagnosed to begin with. How much of a challenge is recruitment? So that is a challenge. It is especially a challenge in ophthalmology because there has historically not been any treatment for any kind of specific cause of vision loss. So many people know that they have vision loss. It's, it's obvious to people that they, they see poorly. But because there's been no treatment, there's been no motivation for their physician or their retinal specialist to do the specific genotyping to understand what exactly has gone wrong in their eye. So many patients do not know the specific defect that they have. And so one of the challenges in enrolling patients is that you're reaching out to patients and saying, hey, we're, we have a trial ongoing in achromatopsia or we have a trial ongoing in X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, and they might know that they have a genetic defect, but not if it's one of those. And so we do a lot of screening of patients and provide that genotyping information. And many times we, we, the patient is very disappointed, and, and we certainly understand, because they don't have the genetic defect that we are studying. And so that is certainly a special problem in ophthalmology where there's been such a history of lack of appropriate diagnosis. Well, how, how do you address this? How do you go about finding these patients? Are you doing it through online searching? Do you reach out to them through doctors or, or academic centers? So all of the above. <laughs> we do all of the above. We have a group uh, that's called Patient Advocacy, and their role is that they reach out to patient groups. Uh, many people with vision loss uh, form together into uh, associations and organizations to support each other and provide each other information. And so patient advocacy will reach out and work with them and make sure that these groups, and there are, are many different groups across the country, probably one of the largest in the United States is the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and we have a very long-standing relationship with them. So that's part of it, patient advocacy. But we also are very well aware of the specialty academic research centers across the country where there are groups of uh, surgeons and clinicians and researchers who are specifically studying these very different kinds of diseases. And so we reach out to them because they're likely very knowledgeable about patients and patient groups and, and where those patients might be. And some of the retinal specialists actually have databases because they've seen some of these patients in their practice. Uh, and then finally, we do reach out through social media, through um, publications, uh, through uh, the things like radio and TV when there's new information to be put forward. So we try a, a large number of different channels. One of the things we do think is very important, and we have an ongoing relationship with the Foundation Fighting Blindness to do this, is to help support them in the creation of a patient registry. So this is a registry that the Foundation Fighting Blindness holds. They curate it. They collect the information. The information stays with them. But it's a way that we can say, and uh, hey, Mr. FFB, Foundation Fighting Blindness, 
can you search your database for all the patients that know they have a chromatopsia, and could you please send them a letter letting them know where we are in clinical development and that we're looking for patients that might be interested to enroll. So that patient registry is, is critically important, and it provides help not just for AGTC, but for other companies working in ophthalmology and for researchers working in ophthalmology. And so we think this is a very important tool, and we actually have been supporting the foundation in the, in the maintenance of that registry for the last several years. Endpoints can be challenging in rare disease studies. Is that much of an issue in the case of rare eye diseases like the ones you treat? Are there well-validated measures for establishing efficacy? So it, it's, uh, it, it is somewhat easier in ophthalmology than in some other rare diseases. However, historically within ophthalmology, there's really only been one endpoint that's been used as an approvable endpoint. That means it's the endpoint that is put in all of the clinical trials and the data that is sent to the FDA or the EMA, and that's visual acuity. And most people are pretty familiar with visual acuity. It measures your very fine, specific vision in the central part of your eye. However, in many diseases, genetic diseases, it's not necessarily the central part of your eye that is an issue. And so there are other ways to measure visual function, like visual fields or contrast sensitivity or color vision. Or if you're looking for a structural improvement, you can look at something called OCT, which is kind of like a sonogram of the back of the eye. And while all of these measures, these endpoints, are quite familiar to retinal specialists, they're not familiar in the clinical development world in that people don't specifically in detail, like with visual acuity, understand how they change over time, how to compile the data and statistically analyze it in a straightforward way. So while the specialists are familiar with them, and we think these newer tools and these other tools are very important in the space, it still does take time and negotiation and analysis to understand the best way to use these other kinds of tools. In that regard, is there a difference in the patient perspective on what would be a, a meaningful clinical outcome for them? versus the way regulators would view that? So I'm very glad you asked that question because I think it's critically important in clinical development. I think that we, as researchers and, and developers, we need to make sure that the products we're developing and the measurements make, we're taking are important to the patient first, and that is the prime objective, to talk to patient groups. That's why we have the patient advocacy function, one of them, is to make sure that we understand what will be most beneficial to the patient, what are they most concerned about. And it is different from, from genetic defect to a genetic defect. So in a chromatopsia patient, has a very different uh, endpoint or problem or issue that they want to address than does a, a patient with retinitis pigmentosa. So the first thing we do is talk to patients and understand exactly what they're going through, 
what having their kind of visual function feels like and what would be most meaningful to them and helpful to them in improving their their quality of life. Then what you need to do is take that information and design a clinical trial, decide upon the kinds of measurements you're going to take, and go back to the FDA and say, hey, here's what's most important to the patient, here's what we can measure with the tools available, and here's what we would propose as the kind of endpoints we would work with um, uh, with the FDA in collaboration to bring this product forward. And then there's a discussion that occurs. And I think that several years ago, that discussion would have been more contained and restrained than it is today. Uh, there have been new guidances that the FDA has issued, both within rare disease and specifically within rare ophthalmic disease, that have pointed to the idea that the FDA is now more open and more willing to have discussions with developers about novel endpoints, so brand new kinds of endpoints, um, and they're also very open and, in fact, uh, are pointing many developers to specifically look for patient-reported outcomes, quality of life analysis that can help support that these products are really making a difference in the patient's life. And we think that's very, very important and a very positive sign and a sign of the growing ability of the FDA through expansion and through knowledge and through gather of information to be more collaborative with developers in making sure we're developing trials that really do well for the patient and are done in a very effective and efficient way so we can get these kinds of products to patients as quickly as possible. In the context of your own trials, have any of them reflected patient input or patient-reported outcomes? Yes, they very much have. In our chromatopsia trial, very early on when we were working with patient advocacy groups, we learned that the single most uh, important thing to a chromatopsia patient was alleviating the light sensitivity that they have. They are extremely light sensitive in that they wear dark lenses and dark glasses and hats to try and protect their eyes from any kind of light because if too much light gets into their eyes, they actually have poorer and poorer vision. And so because of this, we worked with a very well-known researcher at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute down in Miami to develop a way to test for light sensitivity so that during the clinical trial, we can uh, collect that information and be able to report that to the patient so they're getting information on what's most important to them. And through the new guidances and, and interaction with the FDA, we're very encouraged that this kind of test could be, could potentially be an approvable endpoint. So that's an example, a very direct example, how relationships with patients, how changing attitudes about novel endpoints can end up being very beneficial for all involved. I think most people in industry would say that they have seen positive changes under Scott Gottlieb at the FDA to address some of the clinical challenges companies face. There were many in the works as he leaves the FDA. How concerned are you about his departure? 
So I think that there is a feeling at the FDA that this um, ability to be more collaborative, ability to seek out information, ability to move forward is good for all involved. And, and many of the people that remain at the FDA have really embraced that culture. I will say that within the group at the FDA that oversees gene therapy, we've always had positive interactions with them. They've always been willing to talk and explain and provide feedback. And so I don't expect there to be some big revision or reversion, however you want to describe it, um, away from this era of being more collaborative. Where do you see the biggest opportunities to accelerate the drug development process, and where do you see the regulatory barriers? So I think that the uh, within the rare disease space, the, the barriers are still in that patient identification, diagnosis, recruitment portion, um, and the need to take the time to develop a solid safety profile before you move forward aggressively in clinical development. And I and I think that's critical. That's patient safety. It has to be the number one thing. Um, and, and, and so people, uh, patients, uh, clinicians need to understand that even with novel endpoints, with novel clinical protocols, there's still a time period where you have to establish that safety first. And you can't skip that or make it shorter, it's, it's just critically important to the foundation of any product development. And then going forward, I think the, the hurdle is really going to be more of a time. I, I am concerned about the ability of the FDA to staff appropriately as there are more and more of these very complex, novel biologic products coming forward and their ability to have the resources and the time to review and interact with developers so that clinical trials can uh, move forward. And and then I, th I do think it's an equally shared responsibility in the companies developing robust data sets and the FDA then having the time and the resources to review that data so that uh, products can go forward to patients. One of the things I found interesting in listening to some comments from Scott Gottlieb was that he ex seemed to express frustration about the reluctance among industry to adopt innovative trial designs and incorporate new technologies into clinical trials and work in new ways involving data sharing and master trial designs. Is industry the issue here? Are, are regulators ahead of industry in that regard? So I do think that um, I, I do think that there could be a difference between larger corporations and smaller corporations. So smaller biotechs that are 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 innovative in their technology. They they start out as very small, privately funded organizations, and and many like AGTC go public later in their development. They really must be nimble and quick and take advantage of, of any kind of innovation. But you can't innovate ahead of the tools that are available. So the tools 
poor measurements, like this light sensitivity measurement uh, I was talking about, we had to develop um, the uh, equipment itself, and, and that takes time. And so anytime that you're just starting on an innovative path, there's a little bit of lag in having the right equipment and software knowledge, training, and ability to implement new things. But I think that the smaller companies are trying to move, as they always do, as, as quickly as possible. I think in the large companies, I think while they want to embrace change and they want to embrace getting products to patients faster because it helps patients, it helps them, it helps their corporate purpose, I think a lot of times people don't appreciate the policies and procedures that are in place at large companies to govern clinical development that are in place to protect the safety of the patient and to protect the confidentiality of the patient. And making changes, wholesale changes to how clinical development happens uh, can be cumbersome, and you need to make sure that you're making those changes appropriately. So I think everyone in 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 the development wants to make those changes, wants things to be efficient, but it, do, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Even at small companies, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, as you think about it, where do you see the greatest opportunities to lower the cost and, and reduce the time of bringing innovative therapies to rare disease patients? So in my space, I, and I can only really speak to my space that I have the direct experience in, I think being able to establish safety for a, a particular gene therapy delivery, uh, like, you know, we use AAV, so we, if we use an AAV vector and we put it in the same formulation and we put it in the, we deliver it to the eye in the exact same way, to be able to um, lean on and uh, refer to a foundation of safety data built in another clinical trial with the same vector, the same delivery, the same formulation, and all we're doing is changing the specific genetic material we're delivering, that would be very helpful. And I think that there are signs that that, as we develop this database of information, that that, that would be something that would be possible, and that would certainly speed up development if you could use this growing database of safety data to leverage that and allow you to do a smaller, faster trial for a specific indication. So I think that that's an example of something that would be feasible as we're developing um, this kind of product moving forward. Sue Washer, CEO of AGTC. Sue, thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. 
drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>